Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is a suggestion from listener Bill. It is from the opening Kyrie of the Mass in B minor. Kyrie eleison, Greek for Lord have mercy. There are thousands of settings of this particular text for music over the ages. Different composers have used this mass text and set it to many different moods. But the mood that you get at the very beginning of this, which is the very beginning of the huge Mass in B minor, a work that's over two hours long. I think this mood that Bach strikes here might just be the most perfect for the text. This is a huge orchestra for the Baroque era. We talked about this a couple episodes ago. This would have been absolutely stunning because people wouldn't have really heard much like it. Five parts of choir, bass instruments, and a full string section, along with two oboes and a bassoon, and two flutes, and some more instruments that we don't even hear in this particular movement. That four-measure introduction that we just heard is famous, wouldn't you say, Christian? It's a famous introduction. Definitely. And it's, it doesn't appear again in the piece. It's just an intro. And the rest of this movement, which is the longest movement in the whole Mass, really sets the tone in it. And Bach takes his time and repeats these themes a lot that he sets up here. It has all the hallmarks of the most serious type of music of Bach. If something is serious and it's supposed to be about themes of, of Christ, Lord having mercy, Christ having mercy, that kind of thing, um, themes of sin or distress, then we're going to get something in a minor key with a lot of chromatic alteration. And what we get here is just one of the most perfect fugue subjects that Bach ever wrote, and that is saying something because of how many great ones he wrote. And that is what you hear when the instruments enter on the fifth measure. So right after that big intro, this is what you hear the flute and oboe play. Yeah, and 
That is just a master class in melodic contour right there. So it starts out with a repeated note, right? And then there's this sort of keening pull down. As some notes are rising, it just it just can't help but but like sighing down, right? It's just it's so sad, you know. It's so deeply sad, and even when it reaches a sort of hopeful height, oh, it's so like it's so gut wrenching there, and that's the chromatic alteration there that you hear on those notes. He hangs on that C natural, which is out of the key. It's in what's called a Neapolitan chord. Which just gives it a lot of dark flavor. Neapolitan chord. Christian, what is Neapolitan chord? A Neapolitan chord is... Yeah. A Neapolitan chord is actually nothing more than a decoration of a more common chord with the top note, usually the top melodic note, pushed down flat. So it could have been... would be the more ordinary version. So one great example of a Neapolitan chord is in the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and I like to use this as an example of why the Neapolitan chord has its own special flavor. Here's how that part of Moonlight Sonata would sound without the Neapolitan chord, with the more conventional option. Or maybe I'd even argue, Alex, that without the Neapolitan chord, it would have been this. Yeah, true. But either way, it's way less good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Way less interesting, for sure. That note, that which is the flat two, that gives it its color, has... It, it's so interesting because it is it is darker. We talked a little bit about the circle of fifths before, but basically if you do flatter notes, the notes, the chords, and the relations sound darker. If you raise things up and make them sharp within the key, then you're making it sound brighter. And composers go into a dominant key a lot to, to just give a little brightness and then fall back into the, the normal darkness or vice versa with other keys. And this suffice it to say that when you use a Neapolitan chord, it's like, swinging that needle really far over to the darker side, several flats away, so that you get something that, even though we're already in a minor key, sounds even darker than the minor key we're in. Mm -hmm. If you like to think of things in modern chord terminology, which most people, most modern musicians do, unfortunately the Neapolitan chord is, in that perspective is a little harder to explain. It's actually much easier to explain in the ancient uh, way of voice leading but but if you like to think of things this way it is the chord whose root 
is the flat second scale degree, but whose bass note is scale degree four of the key. Man, that sounds so complicated to explain, but it's not complicated at all because because it's, like I said, it's not that. It's really not that. It's just a decoration of this. To this. It's very striking, but only because that one note has been changed. Not because it's some, you know, flat two of this or whatever. It's, it's because that one note is changed from scale degree two to flat scale degree two. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah, and, and harmonically, we just described it, but melodically... What's interesting about it is the double chromatic neighbor tone that happens there. So Christian, why don't you play those double chromatic things? In other words, those notes that are chromatically right next to each other that you just played. Yeah, those notes are all just immediately as close together as you can get on the piano. And that's why we call them chromatic, the color notes. And that's striking and unusual. And the reason it's unusual is because when you play notes in normal keys, you don't do half steps like that all the time. You switch off between half and whole steps, and most steps are whole steps. And that gives it a really weird sound to make it all half steps there. And it because you're twisting around, da, 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 what you're doing is the middle note of those is the tonic. So it's got this very weird pull. Even so, it still wants to go toward the tonic in the middle. Yep, it would still happen if it wasn't, if it wasn't Neapolitan. But because it is. The melody is much tighter and stranger. Yeah, and, and I just think, you know, Bach, it's all about the text for Bach. We say this all the time. It's always about the text. So even though there aren't any words happening yet at this instrumental entrance, that's only because he just hasn't brought in the voices yet in this fugal section, but he will. And the, those words are, like we said, it's just Kyrie Eleison. It's just Lord have mercy. You know, the, Neopolit the use of the Neapolitan as a dramatic lowered note, I think, is the most important thing here. And not just, like I said, I don't like to think of it in the complex way of it's a chord built on the flat two degree. I like to think of it as just a emotionally lowered note. And the reason is because of this text, I think... Mm -hmm. This melody is prostrate. Like, this is a groveling melody. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's like almost sad and pathetic and, and contrite, I guess. It is. Or, or confusing. Like, it indicates confusion. It indicates, like, being in a, in a state of maybe not even understanding all the things that are wrong about oneself or something. And, and it's, speaking of contrite, that's what I think he's doing with those little upward and downward leaps that I was talking about before. It's that thing. It's just, they're like little prayers. But then the little falling, it's just like, I think those are just the little admissions of sin, you know, like groveling, like you were saying, Christian. It's all very uh, subjective, but I mean, that's what it could mean to me. And it's, it's pretty likely that Bach felt similarly because he is treating the text in a certain way here. Mm -hmm. Admissions of sin or release of control of oneself as if to say i don't know solutions to problems so i'm falling on my knees and just praying yeah the metaphors are strong in this one i think always with the dominant chord leading to the 
the tonic, it's a sense of like inevitability. Like something is going to lead there and then you're back to B minor that you were used to, right? And so in a major key, when you have that, that perfect cadence, when the, the dominant goes to the tonic, it sounds, it sounds inevitable, but it's like a good kind of inevitable, right? Yeah, you, you knew it was coming there. And it felt um, it felt kind of relaxing, or at least felt like it was completing some thought or something like that. But the, the same cadence but resolving into a minor key, it still feels inevitable, but it's a sadder kind of inevitable. Yeah, and so that, to me, is part of why the minor mode works so well in sacred music that is especially about penitence for your sins and things like that or about the psalms or things like that because that very human sense of the expression of apology for one's actions it lends itself well to the classical style of minor music i mean i think that like minor music doesn't always equal sad that's too simplistic but specifically with classical music and the way that someone like bach uses these chromatic tones and then the way that the the dominant goes to the tonic in a minor context like this. It's very searching. It sounds like you're searching your inner self and you're admitting your guilt kind of thing. So then what does Bach do? Well, this is a fugue which shouldn't surprise you at all if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or you just know about Bach. And once you hear the flute and oboe start that, after a few measures, something else will happen, and that will be that you will hear that melody happen again in other instruments that will enter. And that will be displaced by a fourth or fifth, so it won't start on the same note, but it will be the same type of melody. In this case, the second instruments to pick up the theme are the second flute and second oboe in unison right and first we heard we heard it on the first flute and first oboe and i'm going to start this fugue over and listen to the first flute and first oboe start that familiar melody and then i will call it out when the answer which is the second statement of the melody is about to happen in the other flute and other oboe so here's the first one Okay, the other instruments are about to answer. So there you go. That's a simple version of that. But you know what else was happening? A whole bunch of other stuff was happening, right, Christian? <laughs> That's the thing. It's sometimes when he starts these fugues, it is as simple as just those voices or just those voices and a bass part, the continuo part, which includes some chords from a, from a harpsichord or organ. But... Here, he's seen fit to orchestrate it out with written out parts a little more in the strings. Now, we're going to listen to that same same exact thing, but instead of listening to the wind instruments, just try and listen to the strings only. Just let your ear float over to the violin or viola sounds and see what you hear. So what you just heard there was just three completely independent parts in the strings, violin one, violin two, and viola, all playing their own stuff. Like we've said before, it's almost impossible 
for your brain to follow all these things at once because it'd be like trying to listen to multiple conversations happening at the same time, albeit ones that sound good together. But that's what's remarkable about this kind of counterpoint. It all works. But this is just classic Bach for you because I think a lesser composer may have chosen to keep it simple and just lay out a fugue. And the fugue would be probably four part and then it would just be that. But here, he's, that's not enough for Bach and he wants to do this a little more complicated. It's, it's an unusual orchestration choice. I remember trying to teach something, some sort of orchestration lesson on historical progression of how, how the orchestra has evolved over time. And the standard orchestra is you know, maybe 50 years after this. This is pretty early, orchestrally speaking. But how Bach uses the different instruments here is starting to get at what will happen in the time of Mozart and Beethoven. But it's not exactly, it's not exactly the same. And Bach is a little bit fussy, right? He, he does a lot of stuff here he, doesn't, he did not have to do. He gives, yeah. like you said, Alex, the easy thing would have been to compose a fugue here at the beginning instrumentally where everyone just is assigned to a part and everyone always doubles. This is not what he does. Instruments will pair up from time to time, but then later they will not be paired. This is how he wrote his cantata instrumental parts as well. Right. He took a great deal of time working these things out, or at least a great deal of energy, because he didn't have that much time to spare. But like like at the beginning of, of this fugue exposition, the flute one and oboe one have the theme. The flute two and oboe two are the only instruments resting, waiting right. for their turn to have the theme. The string parts, three independent string parts are playing their own counter melodies that are each lines unto themselves, not just chords. You know, they're, they're each a linear melody that are perfectly stable on their own. And it's that kind of counterpoint that is lost after the time of the Baroque era when composers stopped favoring counterpoint. Right. And w- since the orchestra developed so quickly after that, we never got a stylistic period where the orchestra was huge and counterpoint was also crucial to musical texture. That's true. And it makes it sound weird when you listen to some of uh, these transcriptions of Bach's music for larger orchestras that that were made in later eras. Some famous ones by Leopold Stokowski come to mind and they're cool and they're interesting, but they sound wrong to me. They (laughs) are not. Yeah, they're not. They're kind of like no longer about the counterpoint because yeah. sometimes they are about the the texture and timbre, like the Schoenberg stuff comes to mind, the orchestrations. Mm. Yeah. Those are, those are about texture and timbre and orchestration color. And the counterpoint is secondary, but counterpoint is too strong to bury. So I don't know if it's ever 100% successful in my book when those rearrangements are made. And we've talked before, Alex, that Bach's music is incredibly rearrangeable, but this isn't really what we meant we meant that it was transcribable. It, it's flexible in that there are usually a fixed number of linear parts that could be assigned to different yeah, instruments. Right. But it's not yeah. that you could expand into a textural huge orchestra because then what do you do with a harp and the, all the trumpets and trombones and you got four horns to deal with that are fully chromatic now. You yeah. have a lot of things that Bach never used or had or even existed at the time in their modern state. Right. And it doesn't exactly work. Right. And even though, like we said, this is a big orchestra for the time, the relative smallness of the the group here allows for the performance 
practice to really shine through in this Netherlands Bach Society video, especially. I mean, in the moment where the choir enters, a lot of times you'll hear this with choir entering. I mean, Bach writes the tenors to enter on measure 30 after this instrumental, you know, fugal intro thing that we talked about. You know, once the tenors come in on this fugal subject, the choir sings that together, but the Netherlands Bach Society decision here is to start this on soloists, which I love. So first we just hear a tenor soloist here. That's pretty cool. And, and let's listen to that again, but listen to the oboe parts behind it. They are playing that background stuff again. It's kind of like what Bach had the strings do before. It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty similar. Yep, the oboe, the first oboe here is playing something very much like the first violin played yeah. earlier. Yeah, and then here comes the second voice vocal part, that is the alto. So see how the conductor Van Beethoven is doing these He's having just single singers on each of these parts, for now at least. Speaking of orchestration, that's why the Netherlands Bach Society, I think, tries so hard to use these period instruments. It's not just because it's cool to use instruments that seem historically accurate. Yeah. It is cool, and they sound cool. They sound very interesting. They sound interestingly different than our modern orchestral oboes and violins, etc. But it's for balance. So I've, I've often wondered, how the heck does Bach write? How are you supposed to balance these cantatas and these ma this mass and stuff? Why, do, why does everyone use such a huge choir to make it work? There's no way that Bach had 60 singers, but he didn't. He had softer instruments. Right. And that's why it worked. And that's why the Netherlands Bach Society takes great pains to balance things this way. And that's why in modern performances of this, you need larger choirs, especially if your orchestra is going to include more of each instrument than what Bach would have probably done. So we've heard now two, and then we're gonna have three, and then four parts come in. And there are five vocal parts in this music the bass singers have not yet entered. And this brings us to Bill's moment. Yes. And they make a moment out of this, in this version. And how do they do that, Christian? Well, we've been using single solo singers this whole time, but we really go for it here. When the bass singers enter, the choir comes in in full. The bass section comes in in full, and the rest of the choir also slips in, each to their part. And the bass line is reinforced by the continuo instruments, and even the viola gets in there, yeah. and the bassoon comes in as well. But 
But the viola at the octave above, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty rare. I noticed that. It's clear that Bach really wanted a lot of support on this, on this line because it is our first time hearing, with the voice, our first time hearing this wonderful, powerful, pleading melody, but on the bottom, which gives it also a lot of strength. We heard it once in the instrumental introduction near the end. It's always nice to have a melody on the bottom. It inverts things. It makes you, it forces you to hear things differently. But it's not at all uncommon in Baroque music when linear parts were, were so contrapuntal and flexible. But here, it's really a moment, like you said, Alex. Yeah. And crucially, before this bass entrance, the continual part had been hanging out kind of high for a while. In fact, for several measures before it, it was just doubling the tenor line. Which starts, it starts doing that at measure 37. So, you know, several bars before that before this critical bass entrance, and it's hanging out up high. You can hear the notes, especially right before they, they jump way up high. There they are hanging out up top, and then they fall. Then they give us some nice grounding here. So here's, so Christian, you mentioned this before we started recording. We have yet again, Yet another bass drop moment of Bach here. We just seem to get a lot of those, don't we? Yeah, there, there was an active continual part before this, like you said, Alex, but it was higher up. And when it falls back, when composers deliberately withhold from us the lower foundational frequencies for a while, and then build up and up and up, and then they finally happen, it is a moment of great drama and emotion. Yeah, and it's the drop. You know, I just said this two yeah. weeks ago. I mean, we talk about we've talked about this before. It seems kind of silly to keep comparing Bach to EDM music, but like this is the best analogy musically: is that you leave out the bass for a little bit, you ratchet up the tension, and then once you bring the bass right back in, that's when this really satisfying moment happens. Our our listener Bill, who suggested this, says this musical moment makes me shiver each time I listen to it. <laughs> yeah, right. I get yeah. it. I mean, that's that's that just feels right for that to happen right there. Christian, do you know the term frisson? Mm, don't think so. That's like this, like the shiver you get by listening to something really good. Oh, like in the, um, the spine shiver. Yeah. Let me look up the actual. Yeah, a sudden strong feeling of excitement or of fear, a thrill. Right. <laughs> okay. Something you know, everybody's got a piece of music that really gets them, and some people experience it literally physically by getting a little shiver, you know? It's not always like really clear why that happens, but it's, it's kind of cool. And it, it means something really hits you in a certain way. This is definitely what happened right here. Frisson or frisson, yeah. I get that at the moment that we talked about on the very first episode of A Moment of Bach, and that is another bass drop moment right mm -hmm. when the timpani enters in the last entrance near the end of the dona nobis pacem which is the final movement of this huge work so two great bass drop moments from the mass and b minor here right this one and then that one from the from the end one at the beginning one at the end
gets me every time. So one more thing in this particular movement that I love that Bach does, this happens a lot in minor key pieces, but it's it's really heartwarming, and that's when we get an iteration of this in the relative major key. You know what I'm talking about here, Christian? Yep. It only happens once in this pretty long movement that, that stays mostly minor. It does happen once that we get a little ray of light. And that's just a little, a little glimpse, right? A little glimpse of major key. Just a little spot of hope. You know, the major triad is more physically stable acoustically than the minor. Mm -hmm. The relations between the tones, the way they vibrate in the air. And so I like to think of it, I like to think of it in those terms. Major is actually acoustically more stable than minor as a key center. And I think this is why when composers of these old eras wrote in major keys, they bounced around to secondary key areas, which were also major. But when composers wrote in a minor key, they had almost always had to have a section, a secondary section of music that was temporarily in a major key. That's true. Usually what we would call the relative major key. And it's almost as if there is a physical attraction that pulls this sad music, at least temporarily, into a hopeful place before regrettably letting go of it again back to its darkly emotional state. Yeah, before the inevitable, like I said before, the inevitable dominant chord comes in that you know is going to signal to get us back to the minor, like the minor tonic, you know. And we can end, we have a choice then as a composer to end on an actual minor chord for the very last chord. Or we could borrow the brighter and more acoustically stable major chord at the end of the key we're in. Right. The Picardy third, we say. The parallel major. And what that does is it, it takes that feeling that we had before, whenever we had a cadence, whenever we had a dominant chord that inevitably felt like it needed to go back to that sad B minor, and at the very end, you can actually subvert that and bring that ray of sunshine in at the very end of the piece. There's also something voice leading wise that's very pleasing about this last measure and it's typical of final measures of baroque pieces listen to the alto voice at the end here it is also doubled by the second flute and christian can you play that last little bit the last few notes in the alto part there yeah now let's listen to that in context That note that the alto ends on, the D-sharp, is the raised note that gives it the major quality, that gives it the ray of hope at the end. And the way the alto leads to that, da, 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 the leading of E to D-sharp is very satisfying, especially because in minor it would go E-D, and it would fall farther. 
So the fact that it falls to D sharp means it has a smaller distance to go. So it's, it feels even more perfect because it was right there, you know? Mm-hmm. It was so close. So the fact that it makes it to that major there is, is even better. And if it jumped to the minor, it would be, I think, a final uh, knife in the back <laughs> of, the, of the ending here. There's always the linear aspect of each voice coming to the end and fitting right in their place. And that is married with the vertical aspect of the last chord being pleasingly harmonious. And now, here is that moment where the bass singers enter in the Kyrie. This introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor. Please see the link in the episode description. So Christian, what are we looking at next week? Well, the Curie section has three parts. The first part was this long opening first Curie eleison. So next, we'll look at the second part, a duet, Christe eleison. Until next time. Enjoy those moments.